My name is Jeremy and I attend Grace Orlando and I'm here to talk about modern liturgy. And my name is Mary and I attend Grace Winter Garden and I'm also here to talk to you about modern liturgy. My father was a pastor of a local church for over 30 years. What my understanding of liturgy would have been is very dry, uh, very um, religious, very this is what you do, why do you do it? I don't really know why you do it, this is just what you do. So the first week we came into Grace, it was very different. I didn't really know what to expect, and so I was a little caught off guard um, by some of the liturgical aspect of the church, but I was intrigued. One of the things that caught me was when Mike on a Sunday was using the opportunity during communion to just do a quick teaching on why we do what we do, which I think is so important because we're not just doing it, but we're explaining it, we're teaching it, and we're applying it. So the opportunity to come in and see an actual passion and an enthusiasm and excitement and an anticipation of receiving these different aspects of the historical liturgy was exciting to me to experience and realize that what I'm doing, Christians have been doing for hundreds and hundreds of years, and the effect that it's had on them is the effect it's having on me. It's probably one of my favorite parts about grace, the opportunity to receive in, in a different way than I ever have before. I, on the other hand, grew up Catholic, so I was very drawn to the modern liturgy of grace. About five years into my marriage, my husband started exhibiting signs of uh, mental illness and addiction, and it eventually led to um, the demise of our marriage. I didn't have much support from uh, the, the Catholic Church. I felt uh, betrayed. I felt very alone, and I was praying and praying that God would take this whole thing away and fix it and make it right. It was really heartbreaking for me because I was raised in this particular faith when the rubber was meeting the road and I really needed a church family. I don't feel like I had that good support. So I started going to Grace Winter Garden because my daughter and son-in-law invited me to come and just was overwhelmed by the welcoming. I'm not gonna say that leaving the Catholic Church, like the nuts and bolts of it, wasn't hard, but the nice thing was about coming to a place like Grace, there's elements that are the same. There's that familiarity of what I grew up with, and it feels like home. The greatest impact since I've come to Grace uh, for me was observing Lent. I grew up understanding what Lent was, but never truly understanding it, realizing it, or observing it. I really felt like the Lord want me to go to Ash Wednesday. Never been to an Ash Wednesday service before in my life. I get in there and we're kind of getting everything settled and, and Mike asked for someone to come forward. And so I went forward and I realized, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I've never done this before. And what, what exactly is this supposed to be? I'm serving on Ash Wednesday at seven o'clock in the morning and I'm crying. And I'm thinking, what is going on? Uh, and I just realized the Lord was at work. And so at that time, I felt like the Lord told me the way that he wanted me to observe uh, Lent was to give up sleep. Give up sleep, what is that supposed to mean? So I, uh, as I began to just have time with the Lord and uh, talk with him about it, I felt like he wanted me to get up 5.30 every morning. And I, those of you who know me, know me that I, I, don't, I don't like getting up early. I like to stay up late, I don't like to get up early. So 5.30 every morning for however many 40-something days was a long time. 
but it was so powerful. And the work that the Lord did for me in that time, I think really took me to a level of my understanding and my relationship with Him that I don't think will ever change. And again, it all goes back to uh, understanding and observing a, a, a liturgical aspect of church that I just never, I never knew before. You guys doing well? You ready to learn? Ready to go? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad to be back. I was gone for two weeks on vacation uh, in the mountains of North Carolina, and that was a fascinating time. God spoke to me. I'll share a little bit about that with, uh, with you a little bit later. So we're in a new series that, or a series that we're in the middle of called House Rules. House Rules, right? And so House Rules for us are the um, culture, right? It's the culture of grace behind the scenes. People ask us all the time, like, what makes grace different? I can't put my finger on it. And so we decided a while back that we would basically um, codify some of these things that people can't see on a regular basis. And we call them house rules because every house has its rules about the way that we're going to act, the way that we're going to be, and who we want to be. And so we came up with 11 house rules for grace. And we said, this is really, and this is great because like if you're new here, this will help you go, okay, man, this really helps clarify if this is going to be the church for me. Or, and this is equally important, man, this is not for me. I need to go somewhere else. And that's great. Both of those things are good because it helps us walk together in the way that God wants us to walk together. And so today we're talking about the subject of modern liturgy. So the first thing I have to ask is, so what? Right? Modern liturgy, right? We can, we can, we can see, you know, um, extravagant uh, service. We can, we can see um, sacrificial giving. We can see things like that. That makes sense right away. But what about liturgy? So the word liturgy is a foreign word to us. We don't use it a whole lot, but it's a word that we should use all the time because we actually practice liturgies all the time. There are secular liturgies, in other words, non-spiritual liturgies that we're involved in, and then there's spiritual liturgies that we're involved in. We just talked about a couple of them up on the screen, um, and, but yet at the same time, what we're going to do is look at about three of them that we do here regularly, right? We're going to look at confession, we're going to look at prayer, and we're going to look at communion, right? And so as we take a look at these things, let me define for you what a liturgy is. A liturgy, actually the, 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 the strict definition of it is the work of the people. And what does that mean? Well, you and I, if you're a Christian, you know, and I know I'm not assuming that everybody in the room is a Christian at this point because we draw all kinds, right? And so if you're a Christian though, the work of the people, basically what we know is what God has done for us. And that is God came to us, he saved us, he loved us when we were unlovable. He accepted us when we were rebellious. And by his free gift of his son, he offered and we received salvation forever and ever and ever. Like this beautiful, incredible, irrevocable gift that God gave to us. And that's what we know. But one of the things that often challenges the spiritual life is we don't know what happens after that. So our whole mission here at Grace is to help people take their next step toward Jesus. But what does that step look like? So the word liturgy literally means the work of the people. It means what we do in response to God's salvation. The word liturgy is also kind of described like this. It is the repetitive habits that we develop in our life that shape the spiritual contours of our life. It's the repetitive patterns of our life that shape the spiritual contours of our life. Now, we know this to be true in other areas of our life. We just don't apply it to the spiritual life. For example, 
We know that when we work out and when we have certain sports that we're involved in, it changes the very contours of our body, right? That's why a runner looks different than a weightlifter. This is why a swimmer looks different than a runner. Why? Because these activities that are done over and over and over again begin to shape us physically, right? And they begin to shape the contours of our body. The same thing is true when it comes to your spiritual life. The things that you do over and over and over for good or for bad can shape the contours of your soul, can shape the contours of your heart. And so liturgy is the conscious practice, the conscious practice of choosing patterns over and over and over again that we engage in to make us more like Jesus, to make us more like Jesus. But here's the question, and here's the challenge. This is the hard thing about this. There are all kinds of liturgies, and if you want a great book on this, a guy named James K.A. Smith, James K.A. Smith, it's called You Are What you love. You are what you love. Get that book, 150 pages, read it in two hours. It's awesome, right? So, so here's, 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 here's basically his premise in this, though, that as we engage with the life around us, there are all kinds of cultural liturgies that are shaping us, right? And, and we know that to be true. Why? Because we engage in these things, and they pull certain things out of us. They change the way we feel, right? So, for example, when you go and, and you watch your favorite football team, right? This is something that we're not neutral about, right? When you're in the swamp, you're not going, oh, I hope they win. No, you're like, I'm going to kill, like, kill Florida State. We want you to like, maim those people, destroy them, right? And when bad things, so it's a good and an evil thing. Good being the Gators and evil being the Seminoles, right? And so, so <laughs> now see, now look, look, this is exactly, see, I just manipulated you, right? Because here's the thing, here's the thing. I knew you were going to do that. Why? Because liturgies evoke passion because they pull out of us a certain way of thinking and feeling. Why? Because they, this thing's driving me crazy, they, uh, So because they shape the contours of our heart. That's what liturgy does. It's extremely powerful. It changes the way that we feel about the world itself. But the challenge is this. How, what happens? What happens when we're not aware of the effect of the liturgies around us on our heart. For some of us, we watch certain television shows over and over and over again. These are repetitive patterns of things that we watch, and these things shape the contours of our soul. And sometimes we don't even think about it like that. We're not engaged. We're not conscious of it. We just kind of, and this is not an anti-TV thing. I have a TV. I've got like four actually, right? And so, not in my room, but around the house, right? So, 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 there, so we have these TVs, and, and we engage, like we invite these people into our house. We listen to what they say. We're engaged. We laugh. We cry with them. And sometimes they don't represent our values in any way, shape, or form. And we believe, we believe that as we invite them into our house to live out this life in front of us that we participate in, that somehow that's not going to affect us in any way. And my presupposition this morning is that both spiritual and cultural liturgies actually do shape the contours of our hearts. They make a difference in the way that we feel and think and act. So for some of you, you might have been like Jeremy. You might have been somebody who either grew up in the church or like myself that didn't grow up in the church, and so liturgies to you were foreign. And for the most part, when you thought about them, you thought, man, this is just what I don't like about church. This is just dead religion. 
This is just observing something for the sake of observing something. We do communion. Why do we do communion? Because we do it. You know, we do confession. Why do we do confession? Because that's what we do. Those are terrible answers, and I've never been a person who's been satisfied with the idea of just believe it because you're supposed to believe it. We believe it because it's important. We do it because it's important. And so when we started this church, right, we started this church from a very kind of modern perspective, right? We, you know, we've, we've got chairs. You're not sitting in pews. There's no stained glass around the room, right? There's, 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 there's uh, drums and guitars and actually talented singers and there's people up there's actually people up there that know how to play these are good things right but that's what a modern church does right when you go to a catholic church and this is not to bash catholics at all i love catholics the lord be with you right you know thank you man okay all right you catholics are falling down right or and also with your spirit right okay okay so so watch this super important right so this is not but when you grow up in a certain tradition and that tradition doesn't define for you what you're doing, you just do it over and over and over again, it may root you in repetition, but it doesn't root you in Jesus. And we love our Catholic friends, and that wasn't a diss on our Catholic friends over here, that she just kind of moved, and it was very hard for her to move. But what she did was, watch this, for Catholics and Lutherans and Episcopalians and high Methodists, who grow up in an environment where it's quiet. Watch this. I just want you to think about this. Maybe you've never thought about this before, but you walk into church right now, especially if you're like me, you grew up in modern churches, right? I didn't grow up in church, but when I became a Christian, I went to modern churches, right? Like, the, like this. But for some of them, when they leave their tradition, they have nowhere to go because they're not going to jump right into a modern church that doesn't have any memory of where they came from, Right? Why? Because it's too loud. They got drums. This guy beats on the cymbal all the time. You know, in their church, you know, it was quiet and peaceful and wonderful and it was beautiful. And it's too far of a jump. And then sometimes people come from those liturgical backgrounds and they walk into grace and they go, oh, this is so foreign. This is so different. Oh, but I see the history of what I grew up doing. And I see the history of what makes me feel comfortable. And I see the history of what's been taking place for 2,000 years in the church. And it's beautiful. The church is not supposed to be liturgical without being modern, and it's not supposed to be modern without being liturgical. It's supposed to be both. Because we are called to carry on an ancient faith, but we do it through a modern lens. We're not called to change the gospel in any way, shape, or form. We deliver to you what was handed down to us and what was handed down to them all the way back to the apostles. But we have to speak in a language that makes sense to the culture. Does that make sense? All right. So we're going to look at, at some things here uh, and, and just think through them for a second. Because one of the great challenges, like I said before, is that sometimes we're not aware of the liturgies that shape our hearts. It could be television shows that we watch. But what's the real problem with that? The real problem with that is that you and I, because our liturgies shape the contours of our soul and our heart, we might actually end up feeling, thinking, and acting in ways that are just foreign to our character. Why? Because we just kind of got swept along with everything happening around us. We weren't conscious of it. We were just kind of going with the flow. Now, the, the, we see this happen all the time, right? So, <laughs> 
I was hanging out with some friends and we were talking about some stuff in the car. Actually, it was uh, pastors and we were on a long car ride. We were talking about some stuff. And you know how, you know how it is today. You don't really have face-to-face conversations anymore. You're, you're kind of like, yeah, cool. Uh-huh, right. You know? And you're doing like six other things on your phone. You're checking Facebook. You're Instagramming. You're doing whatever. So we were all doing the same kind of thing. We're just driving down the road. I was driving and still doing this. And uh, no, that's not true. I wasn't. Don't do that. Okay. So, so, so we were all just kind of hanging out and talking. And then all of a sudden, we we're talking about a specific topic. And then one of the guys popped on, pops on his phone. And he looks down, and the very subject matter that we were talking about was a product showed up in his feed. Now, how many of you have had something like that happen to you, right? Okay, all right. See, I'm not saying they're listening to us, but they're listening to us. <laughs> My name's Grant Nixon. So, so listen, but I want, you, listen, I want you to understand something strange. Listen, we're being shaped, we're being shaped constantly, whether it's product placement, right? And that's, and that's what that is, right? by the way, right? That's called targeted ads. You pop on a website, you do something like that, and then those things put services or goods in front of you that you then go, oh, man, this is perfect. It's just what I wanted. Is it? Or were you just talking about it with a bunch of friends, and now all of a sudden you have a new desire for this thing that you didn't desire before? How many of you have bought things that you didn't really want? Raise your hands. That's every, no, some of you didn't raise your hands, liars, right? Like you just totally just struggle with lying. All of us have bought that. I bought a Chia Pet one time. Chia. You remember that? Like that was a, that was a thing. Garfield. I don't, I don't know why. It was at the register. I was feeling something in the moment and I grabbed it, right? Threw it in the backyard about 20 years ago. It's 25 feet tall now, right? People go by and they think, man, what does he worship, right? No, that's not true. Don't come by. Um, so, but all that, all that to say, like, we, we are influenced and manipulated sometimes by the liturgies that we engage in when we're not conscious of what's actually taking place in our life. Same thing can be true for anything that we participate in repetitively because these things shape the very contours of our soul. Now, I want to look at a couple of things here in the scriptures um, because this is where we go to clarify truth for ourselves. This is where we go to gain a true sense of who we are, where we are, and what we're supposed to be doing in our life. First John, it'll be up on the screen. First John um, chapter 1, verses 5, um, 5 through 10. Before, before we jump into that, let me give you um, a, a quote and another book. The first one was James K.A. Smith, The Life uh, uh, You Are What You Love. This is by John Ortberg. Um, it is a, uh, John Ortberg, this is an older book, fantastic. Again, maybe 150, 175 pages, easy read. You can get it done real quick. Um, this is a great book. It's called The Life You've Always Wanted. And this is what John Ortberg says about it. To follow Jesus, to follow Jesus means learning to arrange my life around those practices, we could call that liturgies, that will enable me to stay connected to him and live more and more like him. In short, this is just another way of defining a spiritual discipline. A spiritual discipline is any activity that can help me gain power to live life as Jesus taught and modeled it. So we need to be consciously choosing those things in our life to do over and over and over, whether it's listening to worship music on a regular basis, over and over, I wake up, remember, like remember what I told you about four weeks ago, when I wake up, first thought that pops in my mind, does anybody remember? That's coffee. That's right. I wake up and my mind goes, coffee, coffee, right? And I go to the Keurig. I get the coffee. It's awesome. It's great. And then I have another one. And then I start feeling like a human being, right? That's a morning liturgy for me. I don't want to change it. It's wonderful. Let's take a look at three liturgies right now that we participate in. Uh, The first is confession. The second one is prayer. And the third is communion. 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is what it says. 
this is the message. This, this is John, by the way. John is the one that wrote Revelation, right? This is the Apostle John. He was the oldest living um, apostle. He died, all of them died young. He died at an, as an old man uh, on the island of Patmos. Um, he, he writes this, this is the message that we have heard from him, that's God, and proclaim to you, that's you guys and me, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John is setting a practice here for ourselves. He says this, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie to ourselves and we do not practice the truth. I, I love what he says here about truth, that truth is not just something we believe. Truth is something that we practice over and over and over again. That, tr- that, that, that truth is not simply a belief system. It is an order of life. It is a way of life. And so when we think about this, he says this, I'm handing down to you what was handed down to me by God himself. And as I give this to you, your job is to give it to your children, is to give it to your friends, your families, your neighbors, your coworkers. I want you to hand this to them. Why? Because this is life. And here's the thing. You get a lot of messages. You get a lot of information in the world today. But here's the thing. God is trustworthy. God is light. And inside of him, there is no darkness at all. He's completely trustworthy, John says. But he says this, and then he turns the camera lens from God to us, and he says, look, some of you, though, say you're followers of Jesus. Some of you say you love him with all your heart, but then you live in darkness. Now, what he's not describing are Christians who fall down and fall short. That's all of us, every single one of us. What he's describing is people who have committed themselves to a life that is in distinction to what God teaches through his scriptures, and then says, hey, I love him anyway, right? And we know that. I mean, our culture calls that hypocrisy. Nobody likes that. Nobody wants to be a part of something that feels hypocritical, right? And so John, 2,000 years ago, says, if we say we have fellowship with him, if we say that we're a follower of his, while we walk in darkness, committed to darkness, he says, we lie and do not practice the truth. But, and then he switches the camera angle to another person. He says, but if we walk in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, what, 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 what John's doing right now is he's saying one of the primary challenges, one of the primary challenges of the true spiritual life is that we do not live a life of self-deception. And I don't know about you, but like that resonates with me. I don't want to walk around self-deceived. I don't want to feel manipulated. I don't want to walk around in the cultural liturgies of our culture and then suddenly wake up and go, hey, I was desensitized to this because, you know, I just kind of walked along with the culture and I didn't realize that when I got way down the road, all of a sudden I looked in and my heart had changed from the person that God wanted me to be to the person that I suddenly found myself being. And so he's saying, listen, the capacity for self-delusion, the capacity for, for, for li- the, the ability of the human heart to lie to itself is dramatic. And so what does he say the solution to that is? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. However, however, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he says, listen, If the capacity of the human heart is constantly to deceive itself, then we have to have a practice of confession on a regular basis. You see, confession is a liturgy that every single Christian should do, right? Every single Christian should do. And here's here's the reason why. It's so important, right? Confession is necessary because we deceive ourselves. And then the world deceives us at the same time, right? We just follow along with the world and then we arrive at places and go, 
hold on, how did I get, how did I get here? Like, this is not where I want to be, and this is not what God says I should be. And I won't ask you to raise your hands right now, but if we were really intellectually honest with one another, we would say all of us have found ourselves like this, that we just kind of followed some liturgies that we weren't even aware of, and those liturgies led us to places that we shouldn't have been. And he says the solution to this is confession. And I want you to see that this confession, and I'm not talking about confession, like go to a priest. I mean, you don't have to come to me. You don't have to say, hey, I want to confess. If you want to, cool, we, we can do that. It's part of the pastoral responsibility, right? It's part of the joy, actually, believe it or not. It's a weird joy. But being invited into people's lives in that way, is just, it's powerful and beautiful. But the Bible says you can also confess to one another. You can confess to your wife. You can confess to your husband. You can confess. Sometimes, you know, we need to confess to our children. Hey, I blew it. Dad lost his temper. Mom lost her temper. You know, sorry. I apologize for that. It's not the way Jesus wanted me to act. And in that confession, this is this, real quick here, up on the screen, James 5, 16. And in that confession, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We are healed in saying the most important things to God that we possibly can. And I want you to think about it this way. Um, so, I went on vacation for two weeks, but I want to talk to you about what was behind that for a second. Um, the way that I work is I, I go and go and go. Like, I, I preach a ton, right? Four services each weekend, but I do it week after week after week. I think it was 60, 60 70 weeks or something like that um, uh, that I had last taken off two weekends in a row. I mean, it was a long, long time. Um, the average preaching calendar is about 35 weeks. You know, God preaches about 35 weeks a year, and I think I did 70 or something like that. It's not to brag. I love what I do, okay? But here's what happens to me sometimes. I love what I do. I keep going, I keep going, I keep going. I keep going. Boom, I hit a wall, right? And as soon as I hit that wall, I know I'm, it's time for me to, like, step away and not deconstruct and fall apart, but I just need to step. So about four weeks ago, I came to Pastor Rick, who is one of the closest people to me, and my wife, which is the closest person to me, and I said, hey, you guys, I, I need to stop. And they go, no, 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 you're, you're just finishing up. You're just finishing up that How to Love Yourself series. It's been awesome. We want you to finish it. We don't want anyone else to finish it. I was like, okay, fine. I'll continue to go through. I was really tired, kind of, kind of upset, like, oh, man, I'm just, I'm just I'm at the end of my rope here, right? And so I did it, finished it up, and then I went on vacation. And it was, it was, it was fantastic, really. It was, we didn't do a whole lot. We climbed some waterfalls. We hung out. Uh, with the children, um, looked at lots of mountains. We were in the highlands of North Carolina. It was 48 degrees at night and 65 degrees during the day. Uh, who wants to go tomorrow? Um, okay, amen. Um, highlands, uh, Grace, anybody? Anybody? Okay, so, uh, so I, I just thought it, was, I thought it was great, and we had a wonderful time. Um, so one of the cool things that's been happening behind the scenes at Grace right now is that we're going through kind of an organ. We, we hired somebody to help us kind of with the organizational growth of the church. We have four services right now. We didn't have four services before. We added those services and we thought, okay, we'll empty out. We'll take half the people out of this room. We'll take half the people out of the next room. Uh, and we'll, you know, we'll start all over. But as soon as we put all those people into Saturday services, these filled back up. And, and that's good, man. That's a positive thing. It's a blessing. I'm not complaining about that. But there's a part of me that was like, you know, and that changes things a little bit, you know, and I, I'm like, God, I'm not sure I'm 100% ready for all that change. And, and then I just, I, and this is just normally not me. I think it's partly being tired and whatever, but I'm just trying to be, I'm trying to confess to you guys. Okay, can we do that just for a second? I said, Lord, I don't know. I'm like, I don't know if I'm the guy. So we have like 1,500 people just at this Orlando campus, not to mention the other campuses, but 1,500 people right here. Um, and I'm like, 
I don't know if I'm the guy to go to 3,000 people. Maybe I just kind of hit my leadership lid and, you know, I should do something else. And like, maybe, maybe, I, maybe you call me to build the church to this point and then, and then kind of take off and, you know, and, and then, you know, do whatever it is that you ask me to do. And it was just, it was rough because I have not had those feelings uh, since like the third year of the church. And I felt like the father just kind of swooped in and was kind and gentle. And he's like, he's like, you're just tired. He's like, you're just tired. He's like, I love you. I called you to lead this church. So lead this church. He said, Mike, this has never been about you. He's like, this is about them. This is about the people who will come to this church that are not here right now. Dechurched people that are going to find hope once again in me. And lost people who will find hope in me for the first time. And I'm just sitting there streaming tears. And then as God does, and here's, here's the reason why we got there. Because confession is this beautiful thing that God created a pathway he created for us to be able to meet him. But here's what we do with it most of the time. We give him 90% of it all. We say, hey, God, here's, here's what's going on. And we give him a survey of our life. But I kind of came in and I gave him the last 10%. And the last 10% is where Jesus meets you in confession. When I was a counselor, before I was a pastor, we'd have these 50-minute sessions and it'd be, ding, sorry, your time's up. And, uh, and, and, and it, was, it was awesome and I loved counseling, it was great. But I remember usually there was just, it was almost predictable right around 40 minutes, one, of the, one, you know, one couple, one, one person in the couple or somebody would just drop a bomb, right? Because they knew that they had five minutes left or 10 minutes left. They're like, I'm going to get the hell out of here after this, you know? And so they just throw it out there, right? Boom, blow it up, right? And it was just this, this awesome, like, I was like, oh, no, no, you can't get away. I'm going to charge you double, so we're going to keep going. You know? And it was just one of those things. And this is what happens to us when we talk to God. One of the things that happens to us when we talk to God is we're like, here's the overview. Here's the flyover, God. Let me just show you what's going on. There's some bad, oh, a little, little rough stuff here. Here's some good stuff. We just throw it out, and we leave the last 10% on the table. And I'm telling you, when you confess, the beauty of confession is to say to him, the last 10%, because that's where your heart really is. That's where your spirit needs to be changed. And the Bible says that God is close to the brokenhearted, and that's where he will meet you. He won't meet you in the flyover. The flyover is good. Tell him everything. But in that last 10%, say, God, I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'm not enough. Tell him, God, I'm concerned about my kids. I just, I don't know if I'm a good enough mom. They don't seem to be working out. Maybe I'm just a huge failure. Tell them the last 10% because the last 10% is where God meets you. That's where he comes swooping in and goes, there you are. Finally, I get to experience the real youth. I don't want the 90%. I want the 10%. Show it to me. And there are husbands in the room right now, husbands in the room, who need to tell their wife the last 10%. And there are wives in the room that need to tell their husbands the last 10% because the 90% that you're sharing together always puts in your heart this idea. If they really knew who I was, they wouldn't love me. If they really knew who I was, they would leave. It's not until the last 10% is on the table that you can feel truly and really loved. Because she says, I forgive you. And he says, I forgive you. And we're going to move forward together with Jesus. 
Confession is this beautiful, amazing liturgy that calls us to dump out all the brokenness inside of us to the Father and says to him, Father, here's the last 10% where he meets us powerfully. One of the challenges is that we misunderstand what confession is. Let me read that and put it up there on the screen again. James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. If you want to get out, if you want to be whole, if you want shalom, this side of paradise, you need to let the last 10% out. And pray for one another that you may be healed. See, that's, so prayer, prayer heals the heart. King David, who God loved with all of his heart, had sins behind him. And he says this, while I kept silent, my bones wasted away. What he's saying is that inwardly there was a cancer in me. And it wasn't until I confessed and I got rid of those things that God made me whole. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Prayer is another liturgy that's powerful. Prayer is a liturgy that changes our life. But before we get there, I want you to see something real practical. Put up the diagram if you would. So here's, here's something that is, is just helpful, right? You, okay, so here's, here's one of the things that's super helpful, right? For liturgy, for us, when we start practicing this, remember, because belief is not the end, practice is the end, right? We practice our faith, right? And so the idea of faith is difficult. Like when you first start, when you first start fasting, when you first start praying, when you first start reading your Bible, it's going to be difficult for you. And there was a time when you weren't even aware that you needed to do those things. That's what we call in the upper left quadrant, unconscious incompetence. You're unaware of both the skill and the proficiency. I didn't know I was supposed to pray at one point in my life. Now, if you grew up in the church, you're like, well, that's just common sense. No, it's not. It's not at all. The morality of Christianity is foreign to those of us who did not grow up in Christianity. And so there are certain things that we think to ourselves, man, this is normal, and it's not because we've deceived ourselves. And then there's a time when we become conscious of it, right? But we're still not aware of how to do it. This lady, years ago, she came to me and she said, Mike, can you teach me how to pray? And I was like, I'd love to teach you how to pray. I said, let's just, let's make an appointment. Let's sit down and have conversation. We talked about it. We went through some ways in which she could start thinking about prayer differently. And she started to do it. It was great. It reminded me of one of my children uh, early on. They couldn't pray out loud. And I would say to this child, I would say, hey, um, will, you, you know, will you pray for us? Will you pray for us at our meal? We, and this child would go, no, I, I, don't, you know, I, don't feel, I don't feel comfortable. And then over time, over time, they began to change. So, so the words started coming out. And they were, they were, they were beautiful little words. They were, dear, dad, dear, dear God, please help the world to be happy. Amen. And I'm like, yes, that's great, right? Because you took your heart, you shared it with God. That's, you did a great job, honey. But it was shows this kind of like, I'm aware I should do it, but I don't know how to do it. And then we move from that to what we call conscious competence. You're able to use the skill, but with effort. Like it's still hard for you. And this is where most of us fail right here. Like we get to this point, we go, oh man, it's really, really hard. It's really, really hard. I, I can't push through that. Sometimes we have to push through this to get to this next stage, which is unconscious competence. Performing this skill becomes automatic. I remember there was a time when I, um, my, my buddy Mark Winkler in high school, he said, hey, I want to teach you how to drive stick shift, right? I had a Camaro. It was awesome. It was, it was not stick shift. He had a Volkswagen Rabbit. It was awesome, too. And he had a, it was a stick shift, so he, we were out on Lake Drive out in Castleberry area. And uh, I put it in first gear, and it was... <laughs> right, you know, put it in first gear, grind those gears a little bit, and then I'd switch, and I'd pull the, through the gears, and it was rough. It was, it was hard. It was difficult, but now when I get into a stick shift car, just how many of you guys drive stick? 
wow, not that many. Okay, all right. So, so if you drive stick, you just get in, and, and here's what you do. Like, you hear the engine, right? And then you go, oh, I know when to do it. You don't look at the RPMs. You don't do it. You just drive down the road, and you're thinking about other things. You're doing your thing as you drive, and it's not a big deal. Why? Because now it's unconscious, and you have competence, and, and that's where we want to get to. One day, you're going to automatically in your life confess your sin immediately when you do it. You're going to go, oh, my gosh, that wasn't me, God. That's not who I want to be. Forgive me. I love you so much, and I don't want there to be distance between us. I want to tell you the last 10%. I want to give it to you. I want to lay it out before you. And there will be times where you start praying, and it's going to be really, really rough, and you're like, am I just talking to the ceiling? Well, that lady that I told you about that, uh, that asked me if she would pray, for, if I would teach her how to pray, she became the head of the prayer ministry at the church that I was at at that point. Just a little while later, it was a gift that God had given to her, but she didn't know how to do it. She needed to practice. And so she became unconsciously competent at that. She doesn't have to think about it anymore. Something happens, she starts praying, dear father, please help me with this. It's an amazing thing to see. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, Jesus understood that prayer was more than just talking to God, that prayer was um, a practice that we do over and over and over again. And this is, this is what he says, Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they, think that they're, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. He says, don't be like them. So let's stop here for a second. The idea of liturgy is that liturgy shapes us so that we're not just like everyone else. The idea of liturgy shapes us so that we are uniquely formed to be the person God wants us to be because these liturgies shape the contours of our soul. And so he says this, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Have you ever thought about that for a second? God's not up in heaven going, I wonder what Mike needs. No, he's going, he's going I know what you need. I know what you want. And I know what I'm going to give you. Like he knows the whole thing. So why do we even have to participate in that? Here's why. He says, father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, because we need to practice. And to practice. We need to do it over and over and over again so that it becomes a part of who we are. This is, the Father's not up in heaven and going, man, I wonder what, what to do next. And so he says this. Here we go. Pray like this, Jesus said. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. Father, you're in heaven. That's where you dwell. That's where you live. You live in an unapproachable light there. You are holy. Your kingdom will come one day and your will will be done it's already done in heaven, and one day it'll be done here. Today, God, give us what we need, our daily bread. Forgive us as we forgive other people, Father. And then, God, if at all possible, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? So some of you guys are like, hey, hold on, it's not the prayer I learned. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, right? That's, a kind, of a, that's kind of an invention that take, took place later, but that's actually not uh, the Lord's Prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. It stops right here, right? Catholics actually get this right. We get this wrong, all right? And so just think about it for a second. What is, what's happening right here? Matthew chapter 6. It says, don't fill your prayers with empty phrases. I love that. In other words, you don't have to be eloquent when you talk to God. You don't have to talk long, in fact. You don't have to give big, pray, uh, big prayers. Sometimes you can just walk out of the house and go, God, be with me today. <laughs> that's it. That's a legitimate prayer. You go, no, that's not enough. I have to pray more. That's not what Jesus is saying here. You don't need empty words and empty phrases. You don't need to be eloquent. You don't need to have all the right words in the moment. 
You just have to give your heart to him and say, God, meet me here. Because what prayer does is it changes us. It transforms the way that we think, transforms the way that we feel. John Ortberg in that very same book writes this, but to grow spiritually means to live increasingly as Jesus would in our unique place, to perceive what Jesus would perceive if he looked through our eyes, to think what he would think, to feel what he would feel, and therefore to do what he would do. I think it's important for us to understand that when we're thinking about you know, confession and prayer, these things are shaping the very contours of our heart. And lastly, this idea of communion. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I don't have enough time to go through this uh, in a big way, so I want to just hit the highlights of communion. For us, as I talk about each and every week, communion is a sacrament It's a means of grace. It's a way that God channels His grace and His mercy to us. This is what the Bible says. The Apostle Paul's writing this to the church. He says in verse 23, chapter 11, 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So notice, over and over and over again, we have the capacity for self-deception. So you'll see it over and over again. The Bible says, this was given to me. I'm going to give it to you, right? That's our job. Like your job as parents is to give your children Jesus. And man, please don't do this. Can I just, just... Everybody look up here for a second. Even if you're like in your 20s right now and you're like, I don't have any kids, it's okay, watch this. Don't do this when you have kids. Don't say to your kids, hey, you just be you. Okay, Charles Manson was just being him. You know, like like your little demon will grow up to be a demon, right? So here's, watch what, this is so important. Watch this, watch this. The things we do over and over again shape the contours of our heart. The things that we say to our kids over and over and over again shape the contours of their heart. We don't say to our kids, hey, when they're like four, five, six, seven, we don't say, hey, you want to go to school today? No. Okay, cool. You be you. <laughs> Idiot. You know, like, like, like that's not what we do, right? We care about our children so much that we're not going to let them just do them. We're going to teach them and pour into them and shape them so that one day they grow to be people who will love God. That's not a guarantee. The Bible says that if you raise a child in the way that he should go, she should go, then when they're old, they will not depart from it, right? But that's a truism. The Proverbs are not promises. They're truisms. In other words, most of the time it works out this way. So for for us as Christians, we've all seen parents who poured in great, wonderful Bible knowledge and church and all kinds of stuff, and their kids ended up being just not what they were supposed to become, right? But I can guarantee that if you leave your kid on your own, on their own, to just become who they're going to be, man, step in. This is so important for us that we have to step in to where our kids are and shape their little hearts so that one day they don't grow up being idol-producing people. They become Jesus-loving people. That's the most loving thing that you can do in your, in your kid's life. It says this, For I received from what the Lord, from what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. Now circle the word is there in your Bible. This is my body, which is for you. I'm giving my body for you. Right? Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Watch this. For as often as you eat and drink this bread and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup in the Lord, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will, build, sorry, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, it doesn't say in verse 27 there that if you drink it, 
uh, so he's taught, first of all, to know he's talking to Christians right now. And he's saying, what you are guilty of if you do communion wrong is not discerning the body and the blood of Christ. Sometimes this passage is used to say non-Christians can't take communion, right? Um, we can get into that some other time. I have different views on that, right? Um, because actually I don't believe, well, I'll get into it right now. So, so, so I actually don't think any non-Christian has ever taken communion. All they've done is participated in a serv- or ceremony, right? In order for you to truly have God's grace poured into you, it requires you to have faith. It requires you to be connected to Jesus, just like the scriptures come alive for us in a different way than they do for someone that doesn't have the Spirit of God on the inside of them. The, so, so when it's talking about this right now, it's saying that if you come to communion and you literally are just thinking, this is no big deal, it's just a ritual, it says that you are guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And it says, therefore, therefore, what am I supposed to do? Therefore, let a person examine himself, herself, and then eat of the br- of bread and drink of the cup. Your job before you come up to receive communion is to say, God, not am I worthy, but this is why we confess before we take communion. To say, God, I'm going to give you the last 10%. I'm going to give you everything that I have. And then lastly, we come and we take and we receive. But maybe there are some weeks where it would be wholly appropriate. We're not going to look at you cross-eyed. If you just sit there in your seat and say, you know what? I'm really mad at my brother. I'm mad at my wife. I'm mad at my husband. I'm doing something. I just, I'm not in a place where I can receive communion right now. No one's going to judge you. But what we don't want to do is come to this holy, amazing, incredible apex of the service and say, eh, it's no big deal. Because then we're guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus. He died for you to give you absolutely everything. Eternity, supernatural life. And these liturgies he gave to the church, they're given to us so that we can do them over and over and over and over again. And over time, it shapes the very contours of our heart so that we can become just like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray, bud. Jesus, thank you so much that you did not stay in heaven. And Father, thank you so much that you sent Jesus into the world. You didn't stay in heaven and just, and just be the invisible God of the sky. But you came down and walked among us. You showed us not just what to believe, but how to practice it. There he is right now. And Lord, we're so grateful. We're so grateful for all that you have done for us. Lord, now we ask that you'd help empower us to do our part, God, the work of the people. It's in your name we pray. Amen.